On September 5th, the Trump administration announced that it was going to rescind protections from deportation for immigrants brought to the United States as children. Trump's Attorney General Jeff Sessions announced the planned end to the Deferred Action for Childhood Arrivals Program, or DACA, after a six-month delay. Now immigrant groups, Democrats in Congress, and even some Republicans are demanding that Congress and the Trump administration find a solution that will protect nearly 700,000 young adults from deportation and create a path to permanent residency or citizenship in the United States. On this special edition of Peach Pod, we take a deep dive into the DACA program, including what harmful effects ending the program would have on over 40,000 young immigrants in Georgia. In 2012, after struggling to get Congress to enact comprehensive immigration reform, President Obama announced the Deferred Action for Childhood Arrivals Program, or DACA. This program used the administration's authority of prosecutorial discretion to grant a class of immigrants temporary protection from deportation. This morning, Secretary Napolitano announced new actions my administration will take to mend our nation's immigration policy, uh, to make it more fair, more efficient, and more just specifically for certain young people, sometimes called dreamers. Now, these are young people who study in our schools, they play in our neighborhoods, they're friends with our kids, they pledge allegiance to our flag. They are Americans in their heart, in their minds, in every single way but one, on paper. They were brought to this country by their parents, uh, sometimes even as infants, and often have no idea that they're undocumented until they apply for a job or a driver's license or a college scholarship. Effective immediately, the Department of Homeland Security is taking steps to lift the shadow of deportation from these young people. Over the next few months, eligible individuals who do not present a risk to national security or public safety, will be able to request temporary relief from deportation proceedings and apply for work authorization. Between 2012 and 2016, this program allowed nearly 700,000 undocumented young immigrants to sign up for protections that allow them to access work permits, driver's licenses, and deportation relief. While not the comprehensive immigration reform that the Obama administration wanted, this allowed young immigrants brought to the U.S. through no fault of their own to live their life outside of the shadows and do things like buy homes, finish their education, and plan for a better life. For President Obama, this was always meant to be a temporary solution. Now, let's be clear, this is not amnesty, this is not immunity, this is not a path to citizenship, it's not a permanent fix. This is a temporary stopgap measure that lets us focus our resources wisely while giving a degree of relief and hope to talented, driven, patriotic young people. But throughout his administration, Congress would fail to enact comprehensive immigration reform. In 2013, a bipartisan group of eight House members was meeting and developing a proposal that could get support from both sides of the aisle. But near the end of the primaries for the 2014 midterms, House Majority Leader Eric Cantor, who had only reluctantly worked with members seeking immigration reform, 
lost his primary race to a little-known economics professor from Virginia named Dave Bratt. Bratt relentlessly attacked Cantor for his work with Democrats and Republicans on immigration reform, and his victory was an ominous sign for the prospects of Republicans coming around to being a party that's more accepting of immigrants in the U.S. Then, 2016 happened. When Mexico sends its people, they're not sending their best. They're not sending you. They're not sending you. They're sending people that have lots of problems, and they're bringing those problems with us. They're bringing drugs, they're bringing crime, they're rapists, and some, I assume, are good people. But I speak to border guards, and they tell us what we're getting. Donald Trump barreled his way through more than a dozen more experienced Republican officials and won the Republican nomination for president in 2016. Key to his rise was a growing resentment from downscale whites against immigrants and people of color in the United States. During the campaign, Trump had harsh words for all immigrants, including those who receive protections under the DACA program. The executive order gets uh, rescinded. One good thing you'll about rescind, you'll rescind that one too. One good thing you'll about, rescind the Dream Act executive you're order. You're going to have to. We have to make a whole new set of standards. And when people come in, they have so to. You're going to split in up like, families. Chuck, you're going to deport children. Chuck, no, no, we're going to keep the families together. We have to keep the families together. But you're going to keep but them they together. Have to go. But they have to go. What if they have no place to go? We will work with them. They have to go. Chuck, we either have a country or we don't have a country. But after his surprise upset of Hillary Clinton in the general election in November, Trump seemed to soften on the issue once he took office. We are going to deal with DACA with heart. I have to deal with a lot of politicians, don't forget. And I have to convince them that what I'm saying is, is right. And I appreciate your understanding on that. But the DACA situation is a very, very, it's a very difficult thing for me. This left immigrants and groups that advocate for them uncertain about what the future would hold. Not only did Trump pledge to end the DACA program during the campaign, but early in his administration, Trump signed an executive order that left no other immigrant class as low priorities for deportation. Trump's January order did not end the DACA program. Immigration hawks became uncertain as to whether or not President Trump would keep the promises made by candidate Trump. And in June, 10 attorneys general threatened to sue to force the Trump administration's hand. They wrote a letter saying that if Trump did not announce an end or a rollback of the DACA program, these attorneys general would sue the administration and force the issue in the courts. And it was on this threat that the Trump administration acted. Here's Attorney General Jeff Sessions. I'm here today to announce that the program known as DACA that was effectuated under the Obama administration is being rescinded. The DACA program was implemented in 2012 and essentially provided a legal status for recipients for a renewable two-year term, worker authorization, and other benefits, including participation in the Social Security program uh, to 800,000 mostly adult illegal aliens. The policy was implemented unilaterally to great controversy and legal concern after Congress rejected legislative proposals to extend similar benefits to, on numerous occasions to this same group of illegal aliens. The administration decided that the DACA program would be set to end on March 5, 2018. DACA recipients whose protections would expire before March 5th would be eligible to apply for one final two-year extension of their protections. And presumably, congressional action would extend some sort of solution to those whose DACA protections ended after March 5th. But that didn't mean that DACA would continue as is until March. Those who age into the program, or those who were already eligible but had not applied, would no longer be allowed to apply. 
And for those whose protections would expire before March 5th, they only had one month to gather all the necessary renewal paperwork and a $495 fee. By the time the October 5th deadline came and passed, nearly 40,000 DACA recipients who were eligible to renew one last time had not done so. Like when the Trump administration announced a travel ban for several Muslim-majority countries, the end of the DACA program was a call to action for immigration attorneys. I talked with Tori Slatton, partner and co-founder of Stillwell and Slatton, an immigration and human rights law firm in Washington, D.C., about what legal challenges DACA recipients are facing now. I'm going to try to talk about this objectively without getting emotional, because this has been one of my hardest weeks, actually, since starting this work. Um, there's a lot of anxiety that people are facing because DACA recipients generally grew up without legal status. Most of them came over when they were really young and they grew up, I mean, they obviously crossed when they were children and probably didn't know that they were undocumented until they were much older. But then whenever it came time to work and go to school, you know, and your parents have to tell you you're actually undocumented, you're not allowed to do those things. And so when the order came out when Obama passed the executive order that created DACA, I think it really instilled a lot of hope and opportunities for um, a lot of the people I'm working with that they didn't have before. And I've noticed that they've been really grateful for those opportunities and it's meant a lot to them. And also in my experience, they've really taken advantage of those. Um, I've seen so many highly successful DACA people in both work and school, been really impressed. And so it's been really difficult now that their status is in jeopardy and it might be taken away. And how are they dealing with that kind of uncertainty right now? Like, is, is there a lot of fear or is it sort of tepid feeling waiting to see what happens? Like, how are they feeling right now? What I'm trying to do is with my current clients and what I'm telling everyone on my Facebook, everyone who's asking me about like what to do is probably get a consultation with an immigration attorney um, because you might have other forms of relief that you don't know are available. And then, I mean, that's what I'm doing on a professional level with my friends who are on DACA. I'm trying to console them, um, trying to be as optimistic as possible and also be realistic about what would happen if this was taken away. So with a lot of my clients now, I'm trying to work out a plan for if they are uh, put into removal proceedings, you know, what documents we would file, what information I need, um, if they're pulled over by the police, you know, to pull out my card. Uh, so that way, like, they don't have to answer questions right away. We're trying to come up with those, but also taking it just one step at a time, because the current step is right now, renew your DACA, stay in status for as long as possible. In terms of where this goes from here, the president said that he wanted Congress to come up with a solution to this. I think there's a lot of uncertainty about what Congress is capable of accomplishing right now and what they've been capable of accomplishing on immigration generally, since this is an issue that they haven't addressed comprehensively in a really long time. Um, what do you think about or what do you think the potential outcome might be? I mean, ideally, I would love to see a version of DACA passed with a pathway to citizenship. That would be great. I don't think that's going to happen with the current political climate. I'm also hopeful because the stories that DACA recipients have are so heart-wrenching. I don't think anyone wants to be in power whenever a DACA recipient gets deported because I don't think that would reflect very well on your leadership. So I'm hopeful that they will pass something, but I don't know because this is one of those things they've been trying to pass for years. I think since 2002, they just like, there have been so many different versions of this legislation introduced and it's never been able to pass. And so maybe now with the pressure and with like that 
reality hanging over their head, then maybe um, something will come to fruition. But I'm, I'm hesitantly optimistic. So part of the reason that we're in this situation and, and part of what I think helped push Trump to make this decision now is that there were 10 attorneys general who were threatening to sue the Trump administration if they did not announce a rollback or end to the DACA program. And there's been some debate in legal circles about what the legal liability and the constitutional liability of the DACA program was. What do you think about that debate and and how much liability was there for this program established by President Obama? So this is a question that I have a very hard time answering because as somebody who's very uh, pro-immigration and is an immigrant advocate, and obviously it's my profession, you know, I want there to be a DACA solution. That being said, when DACA came out, I was in law school at the time, and I remember being really frustrated because I didn't feel like it was passed the right way. Um, I mean, I don't know what I would have done in President Obama's position because I would not have wanted those um, people to be deported under my leadership. And those stories would have just been tragic. It would have been awful. And so, I mean, like, I probably would have done the same thing. But there's also a side of me that's thinking long term. And do you really want executive power expanded that much? So, but as far as the attorney generals suing Trump, I mean, it wasn't like they were going to sue and then it was going to be taken away the next day. It would have been in the court system for years and years and years. And then even then, I think it might have been overruled at the Supreme Court. Um, The urgency that I think the Trump administration was trying to play this off as like they had to revoke it that day or they were going to get sued is a little bit ridiculous. In addition to the solutions that could come from Congress on this, there are attorneys general and other legal groups represented by Democrats and other nonpartisan organizations that are suing the Trump administration in trying to come up with some sort of legal rationale as to why you know the Trump administration is wrong to roll back the DACA program. Do you have any hope in that solution? Or, or is there any sort of legal argument or legal doctrine there that that DACA recipients could count on? So, I mean, yeah, on one hand, I'm all about immediate solutions, because I have clients and I see them every day. And so if something can get passed right away, um, or if there can be any sort of halt on this order, then that would be great. Um, I don't think realistically that's probably going to happen. I think that's kind of putting energy in the wrong avenue. I think the best way to save DACA is probably putting a lot of pressure on representatives. Um, I think it's on us to call them right now and really express our feelings about um, DACA because I think that's going to be the most long-lasting solution. As far as the, the lawsuits I've seen from Democrats at this point have kind of been basing it similar to what I saw the travel ban was that Trump is coming at this with a racist intent, not really with any intent to um, protect the integrity of the immigration system. I mean, that is an argument worth making, but we also give presidents a lot of leeway with executive orders, especially when they're taking away executive orders. So it's a lot easier to strike down an executive order that's being implemented than it is to um, strike down rolling back an executive order that was already in place. I appreciate the effort and I understand why, you know, do every you want to do everything possible, especially if you're in that position like the attorney general in New York is to protect DACA recipients. But I don't think that's probably going to be the avenue that comes to um, a successful outcome. And is there anything that I missed here? Yeah, the one thing I want to actually say, because I've just learned this week how 
many ignorant people there are about DACA is that people who are on DACA are generally generally on it as a last resort. If there was any way that they could have become a citizen or gained permanent resident before, they would have done it. Getting on DACA is extremely expensive. Um, you basically have to hire an attorney because it's a very complicated process. And that's going to cost you anywhere from like $2,000 to $10,000, depending on your case. And so like nobody just got DACA if they had something else available to them. So, you know, you can't just become a citizen. Um, I just want to make that point clear about who these recipients are. I also want to make clear that anyone on DACA is educated and does not have a criminal record. And so if you're targeting for the safety, then that's ridiculous. If you're targeting for the American economy, that's also ridiculous because essentially what you're doing is you're putting 800,000 people out of work or making them so that they now have to work illegally. And that's not good for us either. It's not good for anyone. But the DACA decision isn't just a Washington story. All 50 states have some recipients of the DACA program, including Georgia, which has the eighth largest population of DACA recipients, according to federal data. These people make significant contributions to Georgia's economy and to the state's tax base. According to the Georgia Budget and Policy Institute, the population of DACA recipients and those eligible but not enrolled in the program, they make up about 47,000 Georgians, they pay an estimated $66 million in state and local taxes. They make these contributions because, as surveys have shown, DACA has enabled immigrants to get better paying jobs in formal business settings. They've also received more incentive to complete their education, which raises their earning potential throughout their careers. DACA recipients in Georgia are people like Maricela from Athens, who was interviewed by Flagpole Magazine last month. She was born in Mexico and brought to the U.S. by her parents when she was 10. She told Flagpole that DACA was a door that had opened for her, allowing her to do things like have a driver's license and own a home. She now has a good job in Athens that has benefits. I talked with Stacey Abrams, a Democrat running for governor and former minority leader in the Georgia House of Representatives, about the Trump administration's decision. The DACA decision by President Trump was short-sighted, mean-spirited, ill-advised, and I think it would do great harm to our nation if it is not reversed or rescinded. As of right now, what, what do you think can be done to support immigrant communities that are dealing with the president's decision right now? Well, I think we have to think about this both in terms of the dreamers and then in terms of his larger attack on immigrant communities, uh, some of which have been led by senators, you know, by Senator David Perdue. We have to understand that Georgia is a state that has been built through the efforts and the energies of the immigrant community, Uh, Latino, um, Asian American, and African Immigrants have come to this country and come to Georgia to help build our capacity. For the Dreamers in particular, the loss to the state of Georgia is its not immeasurable. It's very measurable. We would lose millions of dollars. Uh, these are young men and women who pay an estimated $70 million a year in state and local taxes, a little bit less than that. That means income tax, property tax, sales tax. These are young people who are enrolled in our colleges and who are eligible to help build our economy. And instead of taking advantage of that and creating a path to citizenship, creating an opportunity for their success, we have done everything in our power, both on the federal level and prior to this on a state level, to diminish the value they can bring to our state. Uh, The fact that we do not allow 
DACA students to attend our flagship universities. That is a travesty, and it should be reversed. Uh, the fact that under DACA, these students and these young people who are working in the state of Georgia run the risk of losing their jobs is not simply a harm to them, although that is a terrible reality. It's also an impact on our communities. And I say, I would say writ large, immigrant entrepreneurs have helped shape Georgia. You know, foreign-born Georgians have created more than 30% of, you know, sort of main street businesses, small businesses. They sustain our economy. They are, one, they are the folks who do construction. They do farm labor. They are doctors. They are in our high-tech industry. And they're taxpayers. So let's begin to talk about and think about both federal and state policy. Now, there's an opportunity to attack immigrants. There's an opportunity to lift them up because they are an integral part of what makes Georgia great. Um, and looking beyond the the DACA decision right now, presumably uh, this issue would be solved by the time that you would potentially become Georgia's governor. Um, so looking forward to potentially being Georgia's governor, what are some ideas that you have for uh, things that you can do for immigrant communities across our state? Certainly. I, I do think it's important to know that even if DACA is resolved, uh, we still have a larger conversation that Georgia has to be a part of about immigration writ large. And that leads into what we should do in Georgia. The fact is that in 2012, Georgia passed one of the most draconian state-based immigration bills in the nation. Uh, we weren't as terrible as Alabama. Uh, we weren't first like Arizona, but we made up for it in the cruelty of this bill. And right now, if you are an immigrant in the state of Georgia, particularly if you're undocumented, you are at risk of being arrested and being deported for a traffic violation. That should be rescinded. Uh, we should decriminalize traffic offenses, actually writ large, unless they, are, they pose an actual danger to person or property. That's on the negative side. There, there's also the issue of the overusage of E-Verified by the state of Georgia. It's, there's our immigrant, um, the Immigration Enforcement Board. We have put in place mechanisms that tend to dissuade engagement instead of creating spaces for increased engagement. Uh, as minority leader, I worked with the Latino community. I worked with the Asian community. I worked with the African communities. All of those immigrant populations tend to be mixed status. So you have to think about it on multiple levels. You have to think about the immigrant who is here, who has become a citizen, the one who's a natural, uh, who's been naturalized. Uh, you have to think about those who are, uh, who are permanent residents. You have to think about those who are on green cards. Um, and you have to think about those who are undocumented and may have overstayed a visa. Those are all parts of our economy. Those are all parts of our communities. I want to make it safe to be in Georgia, safe to report crimes if you see them, safe to participate in our economy, safe to be active and engaged residents of the state. And so as governor, I think you have to look at all parts of our economy and all parts of our government. You have to look at higher education, but also how are we integrating children who speak English as a second language? Are we providing adequate investment in K-12 through and pre-K to support those students? Are we making certain that there's access to technical college and apprenticeships? And then are we making certain that for those who are already hard at work here, that they have access to the capital, the investment, and the supports and trainings that they need to be productive members of Georgia's community? 
And then, as you mentioned, you've, as minority leader, you, you worked with a lot of uh, different groups in the immigrant community. Um, what are some groups that are active in Georgia right now that uh, people, if they're listening right now, should look to to help get involved um, to help support these communities? Uh, so Asian Americans Advancing Justice is the, I, I, I may be wrong, but they are one of the largest flagship organizations, and they cover the bandwidth of Asian communities in the state of Georgia. Uh, Galeo, the Georgia Association of Latino Elected Officials. GLAR, which is the Georgia Latino Alliance for Human Rights, uh, is a fantastic organization. Um, there's also uh, the Black Alliance for Just Immigration, B-A-J-I, and they focus primarily on uh, immigrants from African nations and from the African diaspora. Is there anything that I missed that, that's also important to highlight here? Well, I think it's important for us to understand not only the complexity of the immigrant community, but the fact that they're in almost every part of our state, that this is not a metro Atlanta conversation, this is not a South Georgia conversation, this isn't a North Georgia conversation, this is a Georgia conversation. We have immigrants who are part of our armed forces, which means they're on one of the 11 bases that we have in the state. And they have defended our nation, and they deserve our protection. And so I think it's critical for your listeners to understand that the conversation about immigration is broad-based, not only in terms of its impact, but also in terms of its physical footprint in the state of Georgia. And as the as a candidate for governor, I have always wanted to think about how do we address issues holistically with a special understanding for how it affects a specific community, but with a broader understanding of the need for us to think holistically and comprehensively about solutions. As Abrams noted, Asian Americans Advancing Justice Atlanta is one of the groups that has worked with DACA recipients to help them. I talked with Aisha Yacoub, Policy Director at the Atlanta chapter, about what her group is doing to assist DACA recipients across the state. Just a note on our conversation, Aisha and I talked before the October 5th renewal deadline. Unfortunately, that deadline has passed by the time this episode will air. When um, the president made his announcement um, that he was rescinding DACA after six months, uh, all of us here in Georgia, you know, were kind of expecting that. We'd heard rumors um, that this was going to happen, but of course, we didn't want to say, you know, we didn't want to say for sure until there was a final announcement. Um, so on Tuesday, September fifth, you know, as we were waiting for the announcement, all of our, our community members were just like anxiously watching the news. You know, as I'm sure you're aware, the the decision that was made by the administration was that they were going to do a slow um, rollout of the DACA program, meaning that in six months, if um, if Congress does not come up with a permanent solution, that people that are on the DACA people that are on DACA Deferred Action for Childhood Arrivals would no longer be able to have work permits or get driver's licenses and will then end up becoming undocumented more so than they were before. What that really means for our community members and the people that we work with is that if you're on DACA right now, and there's a lot of people um, that we've talked to that are, are worried about this, it really just depends on the date of your um, your renewal for your work authorization. So if your, um, if your work authorization expires, for example, in March, fourth of next year, so that's the day before the deadline, 
um, then you can apply for a renewal at this point in the next in the next couple of weeks to be able to extend that for another two years. But then the hard part comes in for folks that uh, expiration date is after March 5th um, because then they're not able to renew. So we're coming into the situation where some of the people that are eligible and that that you know have this. Are, are able to renew it in the next couple of weeks could possibly be okay. But then we're also seeing that there's a lot of people that we already know after March 5th of next year will have no option for renewal unless Congress comes up with a more permanent solution. Are there other things that people who would need to renew for DACA, are there other things that they should consider? I, I've seen some reporting about like the security of this information and, and whether or not the information that you can provide um, right. could be used against you. Is that some, like, how are y'all thinking through that as, as this deadline? Yeah. Comes? Yeah. So that, that's always been a concern with DACA. I mean, ever since the beginning of the program, uh, people were hesitant about it. I mean, we already know that there's more people today that are eligible for DACA than that are actually applying. And that just shows you, um, I, I'm sorry, I don't remember the numbers off the top of my head, but that just shows you the sheer amount of fear that already comes with a, a program like DACA, because as you're applying for this program, you have to go through the process of submitting your name, submitting your address, submitting um, a, a, an explanation of, of how you came to this country and, and what led you to become undocumented. And that is giving the federal government proof that you're undocumented. You are saying, I am an undocumented person. Um, and with this program, people have put an enormous amount of trust in the system. Um, and for them right now, having to renew their application at this point in time, as scary as as scary as it is, it is the only option for a lot of people. And so, yes, there is a fear that the information that they've given could be used against them. I mean, uh, USCIS in the past has also said that the information that they have would is kept separate and would not be affiliated with um, other other enforcement agencies. But at this point in time, we have no idea if that will stay. Um, so yes, there is a fear that the information can be used against them. And, and that's a fear that would happen after March 2018 also, because we know that come March 2018, there will be people every single day that will lose their DACA status. What is there to say that the federal government won't come after them one by one by one um, leading up, you know, after that date. So it's, it's become a really critical time for people. I mean, there is a, a whole host of people that are at this point focusing more on the legislative solution. Um, there are also uh, a group of people that are trying to support people that are trying to renew applications. And then there's another group of people that's just trying to figure out worst case scenarios and preparing for the worst, um, whether that means uh, preparing safe communities to be able to take in people that are at risk for, uh, for deportation or, um, you know, literally preparing families for what to do if DACA goes away and who to contact and um, what to do and what to tell other people. So it's a, it's a very real situation for some of our people. And I can't stress how important it is for Congress to really step in and do their job right now. Yeah, if Congress fails to do their job, what you know, how how are DACA recipients' lives going to be completely upended by this change in the long run? Um, because it's more, it's a little more complicated than just deportation, isn't it? Obviously, it's not going to be an overnight change, right? You're not just going to go from one day being um, on DACA to the next day being deported. It's not going to work that way. But 
um, there are very real implications that go along with that. So, for example, when you're on DACA, you get a two-year work authorization, which allows you to uh, get a job and you know get a get gainful employment that you can um, build a career off of. Um, you're allowed to get a driver's license for that two-year time period, and so people that will lose their DACA will lose their ability to drive. Um, they'll lose their ability to work. Put, once you remove those things, uh, people are at risk for all kinds of things. I mean, we already know that in Georgia today, uh, a majority of the, well, not a majority, but a, a large number of detention arrests for undocumented people were because of traffic-related offenses. And so taking somebody's driver's license away uh, puts them at an even greater risk for being detained and then deported. So it's not just one fell swoop kind of thing, but one thing will lead to another. Um, without work authorization, people will have to quit their jobs, they'll get fired. But then also thinking about people that are still in college, they will not have an option to get employment at that point. And so you're putting people back into the same situation they were in five years ago before the program. The whole point of this program, you know, you know, we call them dreamers. It's the dream act, right? It's all to be able to give people a chance to dream for a better life. I mean, that, that was the whole intention of the program and taking it away is going to put families back in that situation of not knowing how they're going to provide for themselves or how they're going to provide for their families. So it has real implications, you know, not just deportation, not just, you know, tearing families apart, but employers will lose employees, schools will lose their students, um, you know, we'll lose very important parts of our community because of an action, because of an inaction, I would say, on the part of Congress. And without DACA, the risk for for these communities is higher in Georgia. Why is that? So Georgia and the South in general are by far the worst places to be if you're undocumented. There is uh, a lot of immigration enforcement that is done on the federal level, but in Georgia specifically, four of our local counties have been entrusted and have voluntary, voluntarily opted into the 287G program, which is the opportunity for local law enforcement to say that they want to take part in federal immigration enforcement. Now, that sounds you know, pretty normal, I guess, for some people, but that is actually a really insane concept if you think about it. Uh, you have local sheriffs uh, that have been deputized to work as immigration enforcement officials. So they go away, they get trained for three weeks, and then they're able to come back and literally write uh, detainers and re- literally take people to detention centers to process them for deportation. It is a very scary reality, but Gwinnett County in particular, you know, the county that we work most in, the county that we live in, and I live in particularly, uh, has almost a million people. We're probably going to hit a million in the next couple of years and is the most diverse county in the Southeast. And it prides itself on being welcoming to different people but at the same time has the highest rate of detention and deportation of any county in the Southeast. And that is because of programs like 287G. So I'm not, I'm not saying that, you know, it's just one at county, but places like Georgia in the South, there just isn't access to other kinds of opportunities for people that are, that are in need. So we don't have enough pro bono attorney support to be able to get people out of deportation proceedings. We don't have enough uh, community and other allies that are willing to step up when communities really need it. And so we're finding that at the detention center, detention facilities at Stewart and then Irwin, um, also down south, people are stuck there, I mean, for an infinite amount of time. And right now we're seeing that 
the deportation proceedings are taking a very long time. And so you just have people that are in detention facilities for an inordinate amount of time just waiting. And that's really where we need the support. Another thing about Georgia, you know, we in the South, we just have other state and local policies that impact undocumented immigrants. I mean, uh, I don't know if we've spoken about this before, but Georgia has made it incredibly hard for undocumented people, even on DACA, to go to college. I mean, uh, DACA students and undocumented people can't even attend the top four universities in Georgia. They literally can't even apply. Um, Those that can't apply, uh, the the schools that they can't apply to, they have to pay out-of-state tuition and and jump through all of these other hoops just to get access. And so being undocumented in the South is hard enough as it is. But once DACA goes away, when you're looking at the enforcement angle, it, it is even um, scarier to think about. And so other sta- I mean, other parts of the United States also have programs like 287G, but um, we know that the South has been by far one of the worst places for that program um, to exist. And I was actually just notified last week that there are two other counties in Georgia that have applied for the 287G program, and we're not able to find out which of those counties, which counties those are. But um, we know that the, they're trying to expand the program. So, you know, it's, we already know it's going to get worse. Um, and we already know that we have to do a lot more on our part to be able to make sure that we're protecting our communities. So what are groups like yours doing to support immigrant communities at this time mm-hmm. across the state? One of the, the biggest things that we do is just trying to educate people about, you know, what is happening. So as soon as the DACA decision went out, um, as soon as uh, the announcement was made by Attorney General Jeff Sessions, um, you know, we did a big Facebook Live video to explain, well, what does this mean for you? You know, if you're in this situation, what do you have to do? That is also, I mean, that's for our community members that are on DACA, but it's also for community allies that are trying to figure out what they can do to support people on DACA. So it's kind of twofold. Um, we do a lot of that education, and then we we always do send out community advisories translated in language. So we are able to send those out in um, different API languages, so Asian American Pacific Islander languages, but then also Spanish, of course. Um, and then the one, the other new thing that we've put out this week is, I mean, it, it, it's hard to talk about, but one of the realities that we will face and a lot of people will face is deportation. And so we, as an organization, have just launched um, our Deportation Defense Fund, um, and it's the first of its kind in the South. But like I, I said before, <laughs> the South is the worst place to be if you are undocumented, there are thousands of people awaiting deportation each day. And so we thought it was necessary to be able to provide an opportunity for people that need uh, legal defense, uh, but can't afford it. And so we already know that there's not enough pro bono support in the area. And so being able to grant money out specifically for legal fees and attorney's fees to get deportation defense, um, we believe that that will help a lot of our communities who might end up detained, but are still waiting for deportation. So that's one of the things that we um, have just started. I mean, we are still in the process of um, crowdfunding for that, but we've already got our, I guess, the systems in place to help people that need it. And, you know, it will be for low-income people. It will be for people that either are on DACA or are undocumented for other reasons. I mean, there are lots of other people that could end up needing deportation defense. So it's not specific to DACA, but that is one of the things that will be available um, if needed. And it's very scary to think about, but it is a very harsh reality of what we're living in right now. Um, And is there anything else that you thought would be important to add that we haven't covered? Right now, since we don't 
know what's going to happen in, in the next six months. We don't know if Congress is going to pass a permanent solution. We don't know um, if the you know there's a bunch of states that are suing the president's rescission of DACA. We know we don't know what that means. So the future for a lot of people is uncertain, and that's a really scary thing to think about. I mean, I I feel so privileged to be a citizen of the United States and to not have to worry about what's going to happen to my status in six months, but that's a very real fact for a lot of people. They, a lot of folks that are graduating from college, they don't know if they can even apply for a job. A lot of people that are in jobs right now, they don't know if they're going to be able to, you know, keep their job. Um, I've talked to a few people that are trying to like buy a house or, you know, settle down with family. So they don't know if they should buy a house because they don't know if they're going to be able to live here six months down the line. So it's just a very, I mean, for a lot of people, it's it's not even if you're if you're thinking about it more from the from the perspective of of actual people, it's it's a very scary time. And I know that thinking about it from a policy perspective and trying to figure out you know what are the best political realities and what, what is most feasible. Like I understand that I I work in the policy space too, but at some point you have to look at it from a people angle and have that compassion enough to say that this is a problem that Congress needs to get behind, that Congress needs to fix. And we need to get behind it now um, rather than waiting for a point when we don't, when we have no control over what could happen six months down the line. So I wanted to mention that um, thinking about it from like the perspective of, you know, these are people, it's not just a program. And then two more things I'll talk about, you know, we talk a lot about a legislative solution from Congress and, you know, at this time, there's no perfect solution. I mean, I don't think that there's ever a perfect solution that we can put through Congress just because of the political realities. But at this time, what we're hoping for is the DREAM Act. I mean, that's that's the only feasible thing that we can find right now. But we are we are saying that, you know, if you're asking for the DREAM Act, if you're pushing for the DREAM Act, make sure that this is a pathway to citizenship or a pathway to permanent residency status for a lot of um folks on DACA, but we want to make sure that bills, uh, that the DREAM Act or other bills that are, that are trying to make a permanent solution are not putting other immigrant communities at risk. Um, and I say that because from the work that we're doing on the ground and then also from, from the kind of legislative um, advocacy that we're doing, we're seeing increasingly the rhetoric being used that we are not going to push for a permanent solution for DACA until we can secure our borders or until we can get more immigration enforcement. And that is an even scarier thing that to think about because it makes us think that in order for us to get a protection for one group of people, we have to put up, we have to build the wall or we have to cut legal immigration or we have to spend more money on immigration enforcement. You know, they keep saying things like, you know, we need to put, uh, more immigration enforcement, and we need to put all these other things in place so that more people are not incentivized to, you know, become here illegally and need programs like DACA. And I, it scares me to think about that. It, it disturbs me because we've had so many conversations with people and they cannot get past that political uh, discussion, you know, that, that I was just talking about. And they, they cannot understand why the next six months are so important and why they're legitimately, why people are legitimately. And so 
you know, when we talk about a permanent solution in Congress, it's, it's really about, you know, let us have this thing, but please do not make us choose between one immigrant community or the other. You know, when we were talking to David Perdue's office about the RAISE Act, um, when we were talking to Senator Isaacson's office about DACA even, a lot of the congressional offices are telling us, you know, we want to cut immigration. You know, we're, we're happy to work with you on that, but we also need to secure our borders and we want to make sure that we are we're making America, we're making jobs available for hardworking Americans, and we need to make sure that we're focusing on that rather than accepting more immigrants. So it's the whole rhetoric of it all is disturbing, and I wish that at least at this point in time, in these next six months, that Congress is able to do something. Um, we were hoping that uh, in this, you know, the, the couple of weeks that we're in right now, where Congress has to decide on a budget, that they would pass something through as must-sign legislation but we're not seeing that that's actually going to happen because of whatever wheeling and dealing is happening right now with both of the parties. So we'll see what's going to happen. Um, but we are just asking that whatever happens, that other immigrant communities are not used as bargaining chips because that is um, the most important thing for us. Because yes, we work with DACA students. We work with DACA, uh, DACA community members, but we also do serve a larger um, number of immigrant communities. And so, you know, for us and for other communities in general, you know, we, this is not something we can do. You don't have a family of just DACA students. You have a family that's one DACA student, maybe another undocumented person, and other immigrants. It's, it's not just one or the other. We're all in this together. And so we can't let a legislative solution help one of us but, but harm the rest. I, I think what is a little bit lost in the DACA conversation, at least at the high level, is that there are you know this space a lot better than me, but it, there was another sort of DACA-like program for the parents of Dreamer children, right? Mm-hmm. And, mm-hmm. and then there's other other immigrants that fit into different groups that mm-hmm. that aren't covered by any of these p- protections potentially, mm-hmm. right? But like the yep. the risk of deportation and what that would do, you know, in in terms of the harm in immigrant communities. I mean, it, it's the same or similar across a lot of these groups, right? I'm glad that you brought this up. Um, I wanted to talk a little bit about, like, you know, <laughs> actually, what does it mean to be undocumented? What does it mean, you know, what DACA does offer? We talked about that a little bit more. But then also, who who are you thinking about when you think about a DACA recipient? And so um, it's it's amazing to have conversations with people that don't understand that you can be undocumented if you didn't cross the border. Like, I think that's a very amazing fact for people to understand, but the vast majority of people that we work with, right, in the Asian American community, (laughs) they did not cross the border. I mean, they came from Asian countries. Um, They came here legally. Um, Their parents came here on a work visa or um, some sort of, you know, special visa that they came on. And for whatever reason, they lost their job. They couldn't renew their status they ended up undocumented. I mean, that's literally what happened. We, I have a really good friend whose family came here. Um, his dad was a, a medical professional of some kind, and I think something happened and he lost his job and they were not able to renew their status. And so they ended up in this, they ended up being undocumented. My friend was a child when he came. And so luckily when DACA came out, he was eligible to apply for DACA. We have people from a lot of other countries that are in similar boats. I mean, if you look at the the, the ethnic breakdown of DACA recipients, yes, overwhelmingly, there are a large number of people from Mexico and Guatemala and El Salvador. 
But if you look at the Asian countries, there's a high number of Indians, Pakistanis, Chinese, Filipino, and Korean people that are also on DACA. And so for for a lot of the communities that we work with, we, we work in, we have to address that and we have to start talking about it because even within spaces that we know people are undocumented, it's it's an uncomfortable topic that nobody wants to talk about. And so we have to always bring it up. And then always trying to make sure that when we're talking about undocumented issues, it's not just a single ethnic group view. Um, I think people have this idea of what they think is an undocumented person. And especially for the kind of work that we do, we want to make sure that we are highlighting other stories and highlighting other experiences that are also important in understanding the larger struggle of um, undocumented people. So I talked about, you know, people that are eligible for DACA, because even within the larger scale of undocumented people, DACA is only for a specific group. I mean, you have to have come to this country before the age of 16. You have to have a, uh, you have to show year after year that you are either in school or you have a job. You have to, you know, get a, you have to go through all of these biometric tests and do all of these things to prove that you are a, you know, good person. You know, you cannot have a criminal record. And so that leaves out a lot, a large group of people because we have people that came here when they were 17 or 18 or people that have come under different circumstances. And so, yes, we're fighting for DACA and yes, we're fighting for the ability to be able to support the young adults that are now on DACA, but we can't forget about the larger undocumented community. Um, and one of the, one of the main things that we are trying to help people understand. And one of the things that did come up quite a bit in the um, the rally that we had last weekend is that, you know, we talk about, and this has become the political language about DACA, is that these children came here under no fault of their own. Why are we doing this to them? And I have so many problems with that statement because, you know, calling them children, calling them kids, at that point in time, when we were trying to get the DreamWorks pass, when DACA was happening, fine. But they're young people. They're working young professionals. And to infantilize them, for I think for me, is a little bit disappointing. And so I tend not to call them kids. I mean, I, <laughs> I have DACA friends that are my age and, and older than me. So these are young people. They're young professionals. Um, and the other part of that is, yes, they didn't come here through any fault of their own but why are we blaming their parents? I don't think any parent ever wants to put their children in this kind of situation. And it is not even the fault of theirs to be able to come to this country when they desperately need safety, security, um, a better life. And one of the big things that came up in the rally is, you know, people will say, my parents were the original dreamers. You know, they brought me here to have a better life they knew that if I was back home in El Salvador, if we were still in Mexico, like we would not be able to do the kinds of things we can do here. And they don't blame their parents. I mean, that's just kind of the the, the rhetoric that's been used on a political level. And so I want to make sure that even as we're talking about undocumented uh, young people, we're not putting their parents to blame uh, for bringing them here because I don't blame them and I don't blame them for doing what they needed to have their children come to a country where they could have a better life. Now, y'all had a rally right before the Trump administration issued this decision, right? Can you tell us a little bit about what that was like? Okay, so on Labor Day, the day before the announcement 
actually came out. The Georgia Undocumented Youth Alliance, uh, they had planned a rally in support of DACA. And I think that this was probably one of my most favorite actions that I've been to recently because it wasn't, um, it wasn't just a rally. It wasn't just a march. I mean, it was really, it was a rally for DACA that was planned and executed by DACA students. I mean, it, this was, this was real because it was a truly important cause that was relevant. And that was so incredibly important at this point in time. And it was heartwarming to see how many people showed out to this rally, but also the amount of courage it took for our own DACA students to be able to take this on and publicly put this thing together, knowing that it would put them at greater risk and it would give them more attention. But I think it, it showed how much, it showed how important it was for them to be able to do this, especially on the day before an announcement was made where they could have been doing any other thing. Um, and so the rally it was uh, planned at the um, Atlanta Immigration Court in downtown, but because of the sheer amount of people, we ended up just marching down to the Atlanta um, Atlanta City Detention Center, ACDC, and um, it was kind of great. I mean, we all surround, you know, we were all hanging out in front of the detention center, and at some point, we all looked up at the detention center, and <laughs> we said, you know, we're not going anywhere. We are here to stay, and for a lot of people, that was important for them to say out loud because as scared as they might be, it was good for them to know that people are fighting for them and people are going to do what they can to help them stay here. Um, the rally was, it was great because the speakers were, you know, it was a good mix of uh, current DACA students and then also some organizations that support DACA students. And so um, my favorite part was listening to the stories, listening to, to people tell their own stories and tell their version of what it means to be DACA, not any other, you know, not, not sharing what the media wants to share about DACA students, but sharing their personal experiences with DACA and their personal experiences with coming to this country. And for the first time, I think um, a lot of people started to realize, like, it's not just a single image of what you have, uh, what you think DACA is, because every single person that shared their story had a different story. Um, I am so proud of one of my really close friends who got up there and told her story. And she is a Pakistani Muslim. Uh, she's, I mean, she's not a student anymore. She's a Pakistani Muslim woman who came here with her family when she was young and they lost their status and she found herself undocumented. She was, she's a current DACA student and she was in the past hadn't spoken out because she just didn't know that our community would respond. And she, didn't know how to talk about it. But over the last couple of months, she has become a little bit more vocal and a lot more confident in being able to advocate for herself and for other people like her because nobody nobody thinks that an issue like this also affects Muslims or also affects Pakistanis. And so it was, it was very eye-opening, especially for a lot of the reporters that were there. They were so intrigued by this idea that you had a Muslim person that is being persecuted for all kinds of other things, but is also dealing with another harsh reality. And so it reminded us and it reminded a lot of people that, you know, this isn't just about one group of people and we, we can't, we can't use other communities as bargaining chips, bargaining chips. I mean, that's the reality. You can't say that we're going to help DACA, but then, you know, not allow Muslim immigrants in the country because it affects all of us. And so, um, you know, the rally was great. We had a great turnout. 
um, the next day we got this announcement. So obviously um, that was very disheartening, but we're still doing what we can um, to push for a legislative solution, but also protect our communities while we still can. So what's the outlook for a DACA solution in Congress? Well, earlier in the fall, President Trump reportedly struck a deal with Democratic congressional leaders Nancy Pelosi and Chuck Schumer. It was a surprise to Republican leadership and was interpreted as a shot at them for failing to enact other Republican agenda items while they've had unified control of government. But early optimism around the deal fell off this last week. On October the 8th, the White House released a set of immigration proposals that it said would be necessary in order for President Trump to agree to a legislative extension of DACA protections. These were panned by immigrant advocacy groups as an attempt by the White House to blow up a potential deal extending the program. Just as many in the immigrant advocacy community like Aisha Yacoub had feared, the Trump administration put a target on the backs of other immigrants as a price for agreeing to a deal. They demanded that it be harder for unaccompanied minors to enter the country illegally, that Congress appropriate money for President Trump's border wall, and that there be cuts to legal immigration within the current system. Other policies, like cracking down on sanctuary cities and restricting family categories that help keep families together as they immigrate to the U.S., would likely be deal-breakers for Democrats if the White House stuck to its demands. And for Stephen Miller, a senior policy advisor to the president, blowing up the deal might be the outcome that he's worked for all along. Republican aides on the Hill believe that Miller, who reportedly played a significant role in developing the White House's DACA conditions, laid out these proposals in an attempt to kill any deal, knowing that Democrats would never agree to them and that congressional Republicans likely don't have the votes to pass a deal without Democratic help. Optimists say that this is just the first salvo in a true negotiation between the White House and congressional leaders, and that many of the policies that Trump conditioned his DACA support on likely won't make it to a final deal. But the president and Republican leaders in Congress have yet to shepherd a major legislative priority through both sides of Capitol Hill and deliver it to the president's desk. For now, hundreds of thousands of immigrants and millions that care about them are looking to Congress, hoping that they can do the right thing or fearing that Congress will turn Trump's anti-immigrant rhetoric into policy action. For Peach Pod, this is Kyle Hayes in Washington, and we'll talk to you again soon. That's our show for the week. If you like what you heard, share the show with a friend and go over to iTunes and give us a rating or a review. It really helps other people find our show. We'll be back with another episode of Peach Pod next week. Until then, take care, y'all.